Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I had the craziest dream last night. You're not going to believe it. I, I, I woke up just startled this morning because I had seen this, this, this wild image before me. I, I felt like I was being chased. I'm not sure if I was, but, but I, I, saw, I saw this winged creature. It looked like, a, looked like a lion, but with big eagle wings flapping and chasing after me. And then, and then that was gone, and then I saw, I saw a big bear grizzly, I think, with the ribs of an animal in its mouth just gnawing on these bones. And then that was gone. And then, and then I wasn't sure if I had my glasses on because I saw a leopard. And then the leopard had four heads and four bird wings on it. So I put my, I checked and I, I put my glasses on and it still had four heads and four bird wings. Nuts. And then that was gone. And then the, the craziest, kind of scariest thing, it was beast dragon-like, ten horns on its head, and this one little horn in the front of its head with two beady little eyes and a mouth speaking accusations against me and the people of God. Okay, that wasn't my dream. Uh, That was Daniel speaking. Daniel! That was him the morning after he woke up from this crazy dream at the water cooler, at the government offices where he worked. He was telling all the guys, you're never going to believe what I saw. Daniel had a dream, chapter 7. We're in the book of Daniel as a church. If you're just joining with us, if you haven't been with us over the last six weeks, we've been working our way through this Old Testament book of the Bible. This is week 7, therefore we are in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has a dream. Up until this point, there's been a couple of different dream sequences in the book of Daniel where the kings of Babylon had dreams and Daniel was an interpreter of those dreams. Well, now Daniel is the one that has the crazy dream. But before we get into this dream, uh, this vision of the night, I want to share a little bit of background information and helpful hints for you about how we are supposed to read this kind of image that God has recorded for us. If you've been reading through the book of Daniel, or if you were to go home and open up to the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6 read uh, as a historical account, kind of historical narrative of Daniel's experiences as a captive in Babylon. Well, now, if you turn the page into Daniel chapter 7, you might be thinking to yourself, this is weird. I don't really understand what I'm reading. I don't understand what this means. Why is this in the Bible? (laughs) And if you're thinking that, you're not alone, all right? You're not alone. So there, there is a very obvious shift in writing style between Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7. Uh, actually, from the first half of the book to this second half of the book, it's a clear shift in writing style. For the rest of the book, we're going to have these visions of Daniel that he received from God. Daniel chapter 7 and what will come after it is what we would classify as a genre in, of biblical writing that we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic. Go ahead and say that word. 
apocalyptic. All right, apocalyptic literature. It's a genre of writing in the Bible. If you don't know in your Bible, there's different genres of kind of, of, of writing, of literature. Apocalyptic writing is prophetic writing about the future. And apocalypse is a Greek word that means revelation. Okay? It's a Greek word that means revelation. So in your Greek New Testament, that last book of the Bible called Revelation, it is, this, this is its title in the Greek language, apocalypsis, apocalypse. So an apocalyptic literature is revelation that's given to a person about the future that would not be known unless God gave that person the revelation. Now, I'm going to be sharing with you some information about how we should read this kind of literature. If you're a note-taking kind of person, this is a time for you to take some notes. You're not going to remember this stuff once I'm done, all right? You're not that smart because I've read this stuff lots of times and I still can't even remember it without my notes. So, uh, if you want to take some notes, jot it down, or we're going to have a slide up that's going to have a variety of things. Take your phone out and snap a picture of it. That's totally fine. I'll think you're taking a picture of me, and it will make me feel good. All right, so here we go. Here's some uh, helpful hints, and as we read through the book of Daniel, we're going to be giving you some other helpful hints about how to read apocalyptic literature, but I'm going to give you four things today. The first is this. Apocalyptic literature is full of symbolic language. So symbolism is huge in apocalyptic literature. There are images, numbers, figures of speech, metaphors, all these kinds of things that exist in apocalyptic literature. And we need to know that they should be read symbolically. The writer is not writing these things literally. When we're reading apocalyptic literature or symbolic literature, what we as the interpreters need to do is try to figure out what the intended meaning is, but to also know that God chooses to speak His intended meaning through symbolic language. God just uses symbolic language and figures of speech to convey His meaning. It's like the difference between the way that a news reporter writes and the way that a poet writes. A news reporter ought to just be reporting things that happened, right? Uh, Basically, Daniel chapters 1 through 6 would sort of be like a news reporter writing events that happened. Daniel chapter 7 is more like poetry, a poet. Poetry has intended meaning, but it's not to be taken literally. It's the figures of speech that share the message. This is very important to note, and here's why. In in different churches, and maybe you've come or or heard some of these different kinds of churches, some churches really um, stress and focus on this kind of literature, prophetic literature. And in some uh, churches, and especially the TV preachers and, and those who write books and that kind of stuff, spend a lot of time trying to literally interpret symbolic literature and and try to come up with all the exact meanings of what all of these symbols mean. And so we need to know that in apocalyptic literature, there are symbols present, and sometimes the symbols just are that. They are symbolic. They have meaning to them, but they ought not be read exactly literally. All right. 
That's the first, symbolic language. The second is something that we call shortened perspective. Shortened perspective. What this means is that when, there are, when there's prophetic literature like we have in Daniel chapter 7, that often Daniel is, is writing or the prophets are writing to address an immediate need, but at the same time, their prophecy is not only about something immediate, but also something in the, in the future, and also maybe there's a layer uh, about the, the very distant future, and the prophecy can be dealing with all of that at the same time, something that's coming up, something that's coming up later, and something that's coming up later, later, okay? So all of that can be in play at the same time. That's called shortened perspective. A third is called historical times coloring. What this means is that as a reader of apocalyptic literature, or this is, this is in play whenever we read the Bible, what you need to do first and foremost is understand the historical context that the writer is living in. So we need to know with Daniel, for example, that he's living in Babylonian captivity. What's going on in the world? Why are there people there? All of that kind of stuff because Daniel's talking to those people first and foremost. When we read the Bible, our first thought should not be, ooh, what does that mean for me? Our first thought should be, what are they addressing in their historical context? That's called historical times coloring. And the fourth is the most important of all, is that Jesus is central to all of the scriptures, even apocalyptic literature. All of scripture converges on Christ and is given direction by Christ. All of the scripture converges on Christ and is given direction by him. See, the prophets did not write prophecy just to satisfy their hearers' curiosity about the future. Prophecy does not exist just so you can sit around and be like, what's going to happen in the future? Oh, I should open it up and find out. That's not why it's there. The reason for this prophetic literature is to draw people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of all of the scripture, is to bring people to Jesus. So, as Christian people, we can't read the Old Testament without including Jesus and the New Testament. We read the Old Testament through the lens of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. See, if you just spend your time like trying to literally interpret symbolic language, if you try to figure out why does the beast have eagle's wings, what does that mean? Is that representative of this kingdom or that kingdom? If you're trying to do all of that kind of stuff and it never brings you to a place of repentance and faith and hope in Jesus, then you're just wasting your time. The purpose of all of the scriptures is to bring people to a faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's your time if you want to snap a picture, otherwise it's going away, all right? We're going to keep coming back to these important interpretive methods, and we're going to add to this list as well as we continue going through this apocalyptic literature. All right, let's get to Daniel's dream. It's Daniel chapter 7. It's a scary dream. It's a nightmare. It wakes him up. He's messed up in the head because of this dream. He's troubled by it. He sees four big, scary, mashed-up creatures. All right? So he sees, as I claimed to have seen in my dream, first of all, a lion 
roaring lion with eagle's wings. And then he sees a bear, and the bear is devouring the ribs of some animals, devouring up much flesh. And then he sees this leopard with four heads and four birds' wings. And then he sees finally this, this final beast with iron teeth and ten horns and one horn with eyes and a mouth that speaks accusations against the people of God. If you've been journeying with us through the book of Daniel, this sounds kind of similar to a dream that Daniel interpreted in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had a similar kind of dream with four different beasts. And Daniel's is kind of a parallel dream to that. In a sense, every one of these beasts are representative of kingdoms of the earth that will rise and fall. As a reminder that this kingdom of Babylon will fall, the one coming after it will fall, the one that comes after it will fall, but ultimately there will be a kingdom of God that lasts forever. As Daniel is looking at these terrifying creatures, after this he sees something different far above those terrifying creatures, and he sees thrones being set up. And then one who is white and pure and powerful takes a seat on the throne above all the thrones, and thousands upon thousands are bowing down to worship him, and Daniel calls him the Ancient of Days. This is God, okay? God sitting on his throne above all other thrones, and he opens up the book of judgment, and all of these beasts of the earth, all of these worldly powers that are oppressing the people of God are put to death. And then Daniel sees coming on the clouds towards the ancient of days, the son of man, or one like a son of man. That means one in human form. And he's presented to the ancient of days. And the ancient of days gives to this son of man glory and dominion and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him in this everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and the kingdom shall not be destroyed. I hope that this is sounding familiar because this son of man and his eternal kingdom is one where it says in verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and shall possess the kingdom forever and ever. All right, this kind of apocalyptic literature, this vision of beasts and of God overpowering the beast and this son of man, why is this in the Bible? Why did Daniel receive this word when he did? To give hope to people living in a difficult time. To remind Daniel and his fellow captives that God is in control. Yeah, it seems like there are scary powers at work in this world trying to squash and silence the people of God, but God sits on his throne and he says, no, they've got no power. These are words of promise to God's people, words that victory belongs to the people of God. They're words of hope and they're words of justice. See, for the people of God living in Daniel's time, things were rough. We read already in the first six chapters of Daniel how the lives of God's people were being threatened, right? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace because they didn't pray to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel thrown into a lion's den because he didn't pray to Darius, the king. Threats upon God's people. These words of Daniel, they come to the people of God telling them that God will deliver them from their oppressors. And God says that this one will come, this son of man, coming on the clouds. And this word brought incredible strength and hope and comfort to the people of God, living in Daniel's time, living after Daniel, and they're still in the Bible for us today. For as we live in difficult times, this kind of literature is still in play for us, and we can receive strength and comfort as well, knowing that God will ultimately finish what he's set out to do. I think for Daniel, as he presents these words to the people of God living in a difficult time, it's, it's kind of like a kid who's been bullied at school. A kid who's been bullied at school feels alone, helpless, hurt, attacked, oppressed, probably thinking that things are never going to get better unless somebody intervenes. But then on the day that the principal catches the bully in the act and serves justice to him, The one who's been bullied feels vindicated, feels noticed, feels a sense of hope and a rejuvenation of life, feels free from oppression. This is how it is for the people of God living under these difficult circumstances. It was not easy. We've had it easy in our country to be people of God. They did not have it easy. And so this promise from Daniel to the people is a promise that their captivity would come to an end, that they would get to go home. See, this this goes back to what I put up on the screen. This is why we need to know the historic times coloring and the shortened perspective, because we need to know that Daniel's talking to oppressed people, and they get to go home. They do get to go home, but once they get home, it doesn't get a lot better. Actually, a couple hundred years later, it actually gets even worse for the people of God. And so as they're dealing with their difficult situations, even back in Jerusalem, they still cling to Daniel's prophecy that one will come on the clouds as a son of man to bring about an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And so the Jews wait and wait and wait for this son of man to come. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is born and begins his ministry. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. No less than 77 times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man coming on the clouds presented as the Ancient of Days to rule and reign over the kingdom. Jesus says, it's me. They should have been listening. They should have been listening. But on the night that Jesus was arrested, the day before he was executed, 
he was brought before a group of Jewish leaders. The high priest was there and others. And they accused him. They made false accusations against him. They said things like, he says he's the son of man, but where is his army? Where is his throne? Where is his kingdom? Blasphemy, you're not the son of man. You're homeless. You don't fit in. And Jesus remained silent as they hurled these insults at him until the chief priest, the high priest, looked directly at Jesus and asked him specifically, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? We'll put this up on the screen. He said, are you the Christ? This is the, this is the word, the Christ. That's the same word as Messiah, the promised king who will rule and reign. The high priest says, are you the one we're looking for? And Jesus looked directly at him and he said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's directly quoting Daniel 7. They're looking for the Son of Man and he says, it's me. And the high priest says, blasphemy, crucify him. As the story unfolds, Jesus is killed. And some would say, how is that powerful? How could one who is crucified be the one who has dominion and glory and a kingdom forever and ever? How can people and nations bow down and worship him if he's dead? It doesn't look like a kingdom is being established. It looks like a kingdom is being destroyed. But Jesus knows what he is saying when he says these words. For Jesus knows he's going to rise from the dead And Jesus knows that in his resurrection from the dead, he's going to defeat the greatest enemy. These beasts of the earth, these earthly kingdoms, yeah, they are destroyed as well, but Jesus has come to defeat the enemy, Satan himself. Jesus is pointing to a final resolution on the day where Jesus will come on the clouds, as the scriptures attest to, and he will bring about a final resolution. We are still waiting for this as well. A final resolution where all things are subdued and all are raised to new life and this kingdom of God is established forever and ever and ever. See, for us, these words still remain true. This is still our hope. Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again and when he comes, there will be no more enemies, no more earthly beasts, no more Satan. No more sin, no more death. All those things will be gone. Only Christ's kingdom will remain. But even as we wait for that day, even as we wait for that day, Christ is still king today. He's still ruling and reigning, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge both the living and the dead. But Jesus sits on the throne right now. He rules and he reigns. And as we've seen in the book of Daniel, sometimes it doesn't feel like it, I know. Sometimes it feels like the earthly forces are having their way with us. Sometimes it feels like these earthly beasts are getting to do what they want. Sometimes it feels like Satan has all the control, but he does not. They do not. Jesus does. And so what we're learning in the book of Daniel is that God remains sovereign over all things. You as his people belong to him. Stay steadfast in the faith, trusting in his mercies. Hold one another, point one another to Jesus. 
for all Scripture points to Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, as Pastor Kevin announced at the beginning of the service, we want to invite you to join us on Wednesdays during Lent. For we're going to journey with Jesus in these last moments of his life. In this Golgotha experience, we're going to see Jesus be beaten and mocked and accused. And sometimes it'll feel like, where is the kingdom of God? But we know, as people of God, living on this side of Easter, the resurrection is coming. Resurrection is coming. The Son of Man is coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.